Hello, Internet friends, and welcome to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy... Star Wars fans are being shitheads again. Are you for truth? <laughs> oh, oh, how will we continue onward? I know. Spill it. Okay. By the way, we're recording this in like early June, so this might be slightly old news, but um, you're, you're referring to the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, right? Yes. Yeah, so the Obi-Wan Kenobi racism controversy, um, specifically for those of you who are not in, in the know, the Obi-Wan Kenobi show features a actress of um, African-American heritage. I think she might actually be British, but... You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, who uh, it, it happens to play the show's secondary antagonist, so plays a villain, and has been receiving horrific racist abuse to Moses Ingram's personal, like, social media feeds for a character they are playing. So the same thing they did with uh, Kelly Marie Tran? And John Boyega. And John Boyega. Mm-hmm. Andy, what? I'm not surprised. I... I guess I'm not surprised, but... The interesting thing is we had this moment with the Ryan Johnson, you know, Last Jedi film... Mm -hmm. And that was where they introduced Kelly Marie Tran's character. That's where they really started digging into John Boyega's character. Then we had The Mandalorian, which is like the main actor is a Latin American man. Whose face you don't see. True, but who is an African American man. You've got goddamn Carl Weathers in there. Mm -hmm. And just like it seemed like we were past this but i guess not i there's a couple of key points to zero in here um zero in on here one of them is um star wars fans okay is there racism in the star wars fandom yes is that racism like turned up like a motherfucker when it's women of color Yes. Yes. That ha- that is just the case. I know that there was a video that you and McGregor posted mm-hmm. um that, you know, has made its rounds where he's basically like denouncing the racism that his I mean that his co-star is is encountering. This is a person he worked with and regardless of her character in the show, like, this is someone he clearly has a professional relationship with. I assume he probably likes her very much. I assume he probably likes her very much. And he made this, he said this shit about, like, there's no room for racism in Star Wars. If you're racist, you're not truly a Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. And that is such a sweet sentiment. It really is. It's also patently bullshit. Sure. Because... Say more. Well, okay. Like, listen. 
George Lucas handled race in a clumsy manner. Look at the fucking prequels. Look at his treatment of fucking Watto and Jar Jar Binks, both of whom are a Jewish and an African-American stereotype, respectively. And the fact that they are aliens does not make this better. We gave shit to J.K. Rowling for using Jewish analogs for her banking goblins. Sure, sure. How is that different for the person who's literally enslaving Anakin Skywalker? You know, fair, yeah. And that's not even getting into, like, the original trilogy in which there is a single black man in the universe. And, and we only hear his voice. Well, I was talking about Lando. That's Oh, wait, no, you're right. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking of A New Hope. So that's my bad. No, there, in, in the original three films, there's a single black man in the entire universe, and he's morally gray. Mm. You ain't wrong. Yeah. And the other black person is a voice with a white face underneath right it's listen star wars has never been careful about race star wars has never been smart about race i'm also going to say and i say this as both a very left-leaning person politically and a huge star wars fan star wars has never been politically progressive Star Wars has used vague allegories of imperialism and Nazism and, you know, some fascist iconography sure. for its villains. And this, you know, kind of vague, not super fleshed out, but like present narrative of like freedom fighters against an imperialist force. That is as far as Star Wars gets with its real, like, progressivism. Yes, George Lucas wanted to introduce more political intrigue into the prequels. That's why he tried to do the Trade Federation ship, shit and the, um, the Senate politics and all of that. That was George Lucas legitimately trying to make those points. Mm -hmm. The problem is he wasn't very good at them. He wasn't good at getting those things across and making them stick. And frankly, Star Wars can be a lot of genres. It probably isn't going to be a political thriller. That all said, because Star Wars has never handled race well, because it's never handled politics well, there have always been racists in the Star Wars fandom. Do we want them there? No. But to imply that, like, they are not real Star Wars fans, like, I'm very against not acknowledging the shittiest parts of your community. The thing to do is for Star Wars fans who are not racists mm -hmm. or who are appalled by racism to, I mean, basically ostracize. Right, because the star of the show publicly denouncing the problematic aspects of the fan base is hardly punitive. Yeah. You're going to have one guy living in a very nerdy bedroom who's going to look at his picture of Obi-Wan Kenobi and start crying knowing that Owen McGregor doesn't like him. That's probably all you're going to get from his public statement. And even then, like, they're not going to care that much. Or they write it off as being like, 
oh, well, he has to say this. Disney's mm-hmm. making him say this. Woke Star Wars is a travesty. And, like, Star Wars has never been... Star Wars is still not woke. The Last Jedi wasn't woke. Mm-hmm. The Last Jedi was Ryan Johnson trying to subvert a handful of well-established Star Wars tropes including a little bit of, frankly, clumsy political class commentary and having slightly more diverse casting. Slightly more diverse casting. Yeah. And even then, you don't get anywhere with it. And I'm reminded of, like, there's a Lord of the Rings prequel TV show that Amazon is producing, and one of the promotional pictures shows... A black elf, and literally this became a mini controversy where you had a bunch of idiots online being like, elves can't be black. I'm thinking about how a a hockey player that is on a team I like uh, received a deluge of racist comments because he is the most predominant Muslim player in the league, and he happened to beat a team that did not like that he beat them. Yeah. It's it's kind of everywhere. Well, when white supremacy is baked into your culture as a whole, the things that are mainstream are inevitably affected by it. Sure. The question is, how do you handle it? Disney loves to skirt its homophobia line because at the same time that it's like putting up fucking pride flags places and insisting that it's so welcoming to its LGBT um, fans and employees even, they still issue warnings to families on the unofficial, keep in mind this was always unofficial gay days, Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, just so you know, there's gonna be a whole, like, they'd phrase it more nicely than this, but it'd be like, listen, there's gonna be a bunch of, like, men and women kissing the same fucking gender here like be prepared to like ex- to know that that's around and guard your kids accordingly like they, they put this shit fucking out there they still won't properly commit to actual queer inclusion in their media they try and bury song of the south and their racial representation remains to garbage that's just disney you telling me hockey fans like you're telling me you're experiencing that with hockey fans. My version of this is metal. Mm. Like metal music. Metal music has a severe white supremacy issue. They had it like five, ten years ago when fucking Phil Anselmo was going on rants about how black lives matter means that white lives don't matter to people. And the guitar player from Machine Head had to come out and be like, fuck you, Phil Anselmo. Now, one of these people is much more famous than the other. And to a lot of our listeners, neither of those people are famous (laughs) because you don't listen to Pantera or Machine Head. Right. But the fact of the matter is there's been a longstanding problem in the metal community with fucking white supremacists. And it's really about how the larger culture chooses to respond to that because that's how these movements live and die there's always going to be nazi punks but the non-nazi punks beat the shit out of the nazi punks 
So much so right. that they have to have their own separate bars and movies like Green Room happen. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just... I'm not surprised at this happening with Star Wars. The Star Wars fandom has increased... You know what? As our societal politics have grown more and more divided, I feel like the Star Wars fandom has just reflected the culture at large. Mm -hmm. Because Star Wars is for everyone at this point. It's no longer what it was when, you know, we were on the playground and you got your ass beat for being that (laughs) into Star Wars. Right, yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. And, uh, yeah, so welcome to the love-hate relationship. (laughs) A little bit of a micro-hate for you. Um, Alex, do you want to talk about something that is not related to racism and then go back to something that is talking about, that is talking about racism? Uh, yeah, you know what? I'm here for it. Um, okay. So our format is simple when it comes to love, hate relationship. After a little bit of a douchebag buffer up front where we, uh, kind of talk about whatever we want to, we go into our topics. One of us comes in with something that we love. The other one comes in with something that we hate. And then we take a question from either you, our lovely audience, or more often, the internet. Uh, and this time, I got the love. You do. So, Andy, I am I know that you're a fan of the show. So I'm just going to ask you to help me with this intro by telling me about a particularly memorable moment from the Great British Bake Off. It could be a uniquely horrid challenge, a particularly good or terrible bake, or even a moment from a judge or a presenter. Sure, okay. Um, and yes, just I, I know you're about to explain this, but for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, this is a British reality television show in which people compete by making baked goods, and it's very lovely. My answer to your question, this is probably the moment that sticks in my mind the most um and this is a very minor spoiler the first episode of season two of the great british bake-off um a contestant accidentally uses salt (laughs) when they mean to use sugar for i believe it's supposed to be like a sweet biscuit or a cookie of some kind or something And, like, they realize, oh, God, I've used salt. Oh, no. But it's too late to do anything. And presents this salty muffin or whatever the hell it is to one of the judges, Paul Hollywood. And on camera, he does this amazing spit take of, like, takes a bite and is immediately revolted and spits out the thing <laughs> that he expects to be sweet and is instead incredibly salty. <laughs> and that is maybe my favorite moment of the show. It's the only time it's happened, weirdly. Yeah. No, what I'm here for. I think I think people are generally more careful than that. Mm. Um, Jesus Christ. How you don't, like, just warn somebody so they can, like, judge it on its aesthetics and probably right. still do terribly, but at least it's something. And I'm almost positive that did, in fact, get the contestant rightfully kicked off. I mean, yeah. Um, I'm going to do... Uh, I, I'm going to give an example that's very different, um, but, like, a challenge that I really enjoyed. This is from the most recent season, which I'm watching right now. Um... 
they had a challenge where they had to present a cake in an actual like sugar globe. Okay. So they had to make globes out of sugar and then put it on top of their cakes. All right. And this goes, and there are apparently different ways to make sugar globes. Some people like blow up a balloon and dip it in like castor sugar and then pop it. Um, there's other people who like, it's, there's just a few different ways to do this. There's one person who actually takes the sugar bowl and actually turns it upside down and then bit, puts their baked cake in it and then it's like florally decorated so it looks like a bowl of flowers. Like it's, I think it was flowers. And I was just like, I was sitting here watching this with Stephanie who bakes. Yeah. And I'm just like, how insane would that be to do? And she's just like, I'm never going to do that. That sound, that looks horrible. <laughs> right. I will never do that. But that was some of the most elaborate fucking shit. And this is like halfway through one season. It's a wonderful program. So, so tell the audience about it. All right. I'm here for it. So. Basic background on this show. This is a TV show. Uh, debuting in August 2010 on BBC Two, The Great British Bake Off, or simply Bake Off, as a lot of people call it. Or if you're like me and Mariah, The Great British Baking Show, which oh, is totally different. Real talk. I found out, why, while researching this, I found out why it's called that in the okay. U.S. Okay. It's because Pillsbury has a trademark on the term bake-off oh, for, for some, like, fucking competitions that they do. That's infuriating. So in the U.S., they cannot use Great British Bake Off because Pillsbury has the has the monopoly on it, has the trademark for it. Well, now I know. Okay. That's why it's baking show in the U.S. I'm going to continue to call it Bake Off. I feel like most people call it Bake Off regardless of what it's fucking called on Netflix. Sure. So, the Great British Bake Off, or simply Bake Off, is an English baking competition show in which a group of amateur bakers complete three baking challenges each week. The show has gained an immense following since its debut, migrating networks a few times to accommodate its growing fan base, and in the U.S. being a huge tentpole show for Netflix. We're going to talk about Netflix later, but... Um, the seasons begin with 12, or in some of them, 13 bakers, and each episode, one or occasionally two, is or are eliminated until we get to a final three, at which point one is determined the winner. The show has two presenters. Originally, it was Mel... I always pronounce her last name wrong. Geerdrick. Geerdrick? Geerdrick. Mel Geerdrick and Sue Perkins, later replaced by Noel Fielding and Sandy Toxvig, and the latter was eventually replaced by Matt Lucas. And then judges Paul Hollywood and originally Mary Berry, later Prue Leith. So, the format is simple. First round is a signature bake, wherein the contestants are given the prompt ahead of time and prepare, hopefully, a tried and true recipe. The idea is this is something you would bake for like your friends and family. Yeah. Sometimes it's a bake most of them haven't made before, but you know, shit like that happens. Um, second round is a technical challenge where they're given a pared down recipe from one of the judges and have to bake it to the best of their abilities. This is judged blindly with the judges unaware of whose bake is whose. Third round is the showstopper challenge 
where they again are given the prompt ahead of time and are expected to produce something that both looks and tastes unique and special. They try and get as close to professional quality as possible with these. Episodes usually have a theme like bread week, biscuit week, pastry week. Um, Sometimes they'll have one-offs, like they'll have vegan week or... um, at one point, they had Japan Week, which was a little weird because they hmm. didn't actually have any Japanese bakes. I got criticized for that one a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. Oh, look, I put racism into it. <laughs> um, but yeah, they'll they'll just have these themed weeks, and and it is it is so lovely to watch, Andy. It it very much is, and so just to expound a little bit on this, like a a typical episode might have something like. We want to see your best, um, your best upside down cake, and so you'll have somebody who makes like, oh, I made a pineapple upside down cake, and oh, okay, I've made a strawberry upside down cake. But you're making an upside down cake. Most people know what an upside down cake is. Most people know how to make it. Then the judges will be like, okay, we've got a special thing for you. We've got Mary Berry's recipe for like. Pecan crumble crisp, and here are the ingredients. Go make the thing, and then like they'll always do an interview segment where like one of the judges or the hosts are talking to Mary Bear, and it's like, so so pecan crumble crisp. How do you make that? Oh well, the secret to making that is you have to glaze the bottom of your pan with caramel. And then it inevitably cuts to a contestant who's like, I'm not putting any caramel in mine. I've never heard of this thing before. <laughs> and then, like, the final, the big finale will be like, okay, we want to see your garden party cake scone situation. And it's like, okay, I have to make a cake that looks like a garden and is overflowing with scones. And that's where people really, like, lose their shit and create either technical masterpieces or just culinary abortions. Yeah. I mean, that is that is basically it. Um, at the end of each episode, they crown a star baker, and then one person goes home. And, right. like, that is the stakes of the show. Now, I am very aware that in just describing this, it probably doesn't sound too interesting on paper. Like, I feel like I I don't think I ever had the show described to me. I think I, like, I remember I started watching this show because my sister-in-law recommended it to me. And she was just like, oh, it's so nice. It's really peaceful. It's really fun. Right. And I was like, okay, you know, and I'll watch it. Whatever, you know, we'll see. I, and and the thing is, I'm I am not a baker. I'm not much for game shows like Jeopardy and the occasional bit of Wheel of Fortune while it was on when I was a kid was about as far as I went with game shows generally. Um, and I'm not really a cooking show person. Like, I think I've watched one episode of Iron Chef. I don't know anything about Gordon Ramsay other than he apparently yells at people and makes them put bread on the sides of their faces and call themselves an idiot sandwich. And I only know that from memes. Accurate. Like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know cooking shows. Well, and, and I know this is literally what we're about to talk about, but I, I think like to, to go back to your previous point, I don't know if interesting is the right word. I think the right word is pleasant. 
It is not necessarily an interesting show in that it is niche content. It is very formulaic. And I, I would say it is not for everybody. But even in saying it is not for everybody, the, the core appeal it is, it is just so nice. It is just so nice and pleasant and I personally, my wife and I got into the show like two months into the pandemic, mm-hmm. which was the exact perfect time to get into a show that is just like really soft and nice and comforting. And I think that is the crucial appeal of the program. I Okay, so I'm going to agree with you that it is very pleasant. And it's a peaceful show. It is the kind of show you can watch and feel kind of at peace with. I will push back against you a little bit on the question of it being interesting or not. I will say, I think it becomes interesting. But nobody goes, oh, I want to see them bake cakes. Well, it's it's such a fascinating thing. Because, like, I feel if you can get past the first, like, few episodes learning the format kind of kind of learning the quote-unquote characters like depending on your host i I assume you've seen all three different host teams i have never seen any of the matt lucas episodes but really yeah i haven't gotten that far yet okay so with all of the um presenter teams all of these people are comedians Right. Like, all of them. And none of them are bakers. And their entire purpose to be there is to do, like... They do the host thing where they'll be, like... They'll explain the challenge to both the bakers and the people and the people watching. They'll they'll do the time calls where they'll be like, Bakers, you have... You're halfway done. Or you have one hour left. Or you have ten minutes left. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll do those things. But... Around all of those things, they're just doing gags. Right. Like, I do know, like, every episode has, like, a 15-second cold open, which is usually just the hosts doing a bit. Yeah. And it's not even a bit... It's usually a bit related to whatever theme week, but sometimes it's just a bit. And it's just, like, we're going to get one person to go, ha! And that's the goal. Yes. No, exactly. And, and you know, they'll interact with the bakers sometimes. Sometimes they'll mess with them a little. Like, they won't mess them up, but they'll, like, crack jokes around them or ask them. So clearly just trying to get, like, moments for the camera. Mm. That part is charming, and it's entertaining, and it moves things along. The show has been criticized for, like, innuendo because, like, some of the hosts will just, like, crack dirty jokes when they see, like, a phallic-looking bake or something. Alex, you're telling me Noel Felding can't resist a dick joke? Well. <laughs> He's only made one old Greg reference as far as I've ever seen. Yeah, that's uh, but, um, but, yeah, so, but that that is there. It's never over the top. The hosts, or, I'm sorry, the judges... Are you know there, you've got Paul Hollywood who's always presented as the like stern serious one, which is really entertaining because like you know he's gonna be hard on people, but he's not hard on people like Gordon Ramsay is. Right. Like the harshest thing he'll ever say is like, 
I have to tell you, I'm really disappointed in that. Or like the harshest thing he'll say is like, I'm not going to eat this because I know it will give me food poisoning. But that's because it involves raw dough. Yeah. And then you have the other host who, whether it's Mary Berry or Prue Leith, both of them are very sweet, very like kindly older women who aren't going to be like grandmas about it. But they tend to be nicer than Paul. They tend to be like, oh, yes, I could absolutely have more of that. Like, yeah, right. they're very sweet. And that's, and that's always... And that setup, those personality types, and that dynamic is so fucking fun to watch. Sure. And then on top of that, you'll get the contestants. And the contestants are never... Rarely are the contestants me sitting here being like, I love you and I need to see everything you do. No, it, they'll do, they'll talk about how the contestants like bake this recipe for their kids or bring it into work or something. They'll talk about how this person likes to fish or this person likes to paint or whatever the fuck. Right. Those are never the interesting moments. The thing is, you get invested with these people because they give such a shit about trying to do their very best. And I need to be clear, and this is skipping ahead in my notes a little bit, These can, there is no prize here. There's no prize money. There's no, like, anything that, like, the, the again, the winner of each week gets crowned star baker. And the next episode, they get to wear a little star pin on their apron. That's right. it. That's the prize for that. The winner of the entire thing gets a, like, commemorative cake tray that says they are the winner. And bragging rights. And bragging rights. And a bouquet of flowers. Yeah. That's it. There's no prize money. Right. Like, the, no, they kind of make a, a, a running joke, especially in later seasons, where, like, it's really hard to win Paul Hollywood's approval. So if he gives you a handshake after he's tasted your dish, it must mean that it is absolutely insane. So, like, people will, like, start losing their shit over the simple act of one of the judges going, I'm going to shake your hand. These cupcakes were so good. Well, and the judges are in, like, Paul, they call it the Hollywood handshake. And I think it started as a little, like, silly thing, but it's become, there are people who will say, like, I have seen people on the show get eliminated after doing pretty well before, and they'll be like, I've done everything I wanted to accomplish. I got Star Baker once, I won a technical challenge once, and I got a handshake from Paul once. I've done everything that I really wanted to do. Yeah. Like, that is on tier with winning an episode, is getting a Hollywood handshake. Right, absolutely. And, and the thing is, like, that's so dear to me. You get, I get invested in these because I see these people trying so hard. And something I don't think I talked about here, all of the baking is done in an outdoor tent in the English countryside in the summer. Mm -hmm. So they'll be given challenges where they have to like do shit with melted chocolate and you need the chocolate to set. And it is literally too hot outside for the chocolate to set. So people right. are trying to do shit with their freezers. They'll get ice cream making challenges. They'll get shit with melted caramel. They'll do all... And, and sometimes the humidity will fuck with them. 
They'll talk about like, oh, this recipe went great at home, but it turns out at home, they're doing it in an air-conditioned apartment. And when you're in a fucking tent in the summer... I can recall one where like they're trying to bake bread and the English rains start coming down, and so the humidity makes it like... It, it makes it bake differently. Yeah. And, and it's just... I get invested in this because I see these people invested in it. Because they want to do well. Oh, yeah. No, you you wind up living and dying on the contestants. Like, every season. Because they do a really good job of, like, giving you just enough backstory where it's not like... There are some shows where, like, oh, this contestant's getting backstory. That means he's going to get the kiss of death because they're telling us as much as they can about him now. This show is not exactly like that, but you wind up just, like, caring for these people because most of them are just so nice. And you've got one or two that are, like, incredibly annoying, but that's about it. Like, they're not so annoying that they're unwatchable. Um, Something that I have done myself, which I think has, like, really enhanced my engagement, is, like, after the fourth or fifth episode of a season... I sit here and I make my predictions and I like lock in. Okay, these three are going to be the contestants. This person's going to be the winner when there's still like eight or nine contestants to choose from. And it creates these emotional stakes for me, the viewer, to like watch this person who I'm rooting for have a horrible week and they go home at week five. But I, oh, I thought they were going to win. Oh my goodness. But like, Okay, I don't do that, but I hear that and I go, like, I think back to seasons I've seen where there's been, I can think of one season in particular where there was a baker who was doing great all the way through. And then they do vegan week. And he's an old white man who, like, does not know how to bake without butter and without cream and without without non-vegan ingredients. Sure. He's never done it before. And he ends up getting sent home on Vegan Week. And it's not... Nobody's trying to fuck him up. No, yeah. But he just... He was a great baker, but under these circumstances... And you'll get people who are like, yeah, I bake, but I never make pies. I remember a dude getting sent home one one week because he was like, I don't like sweet pies. I never bake sweet pies because I actually hate them. I think fruit and pies is disgusting. And, like, two of the three challenges were baking a kind of fruit pie in Pie Week. Yeah, the the secret of the appeal of the show, the thing I want to talk about, I'm going to compare this to all of the American knockoffs that sprung up after it got popular, kind of like holding up a photo to its negative. Sure. Like, I can recall, like, they were trying to do this thing where there was some, it was some reality show where the whole thing was like, oh, the pit master. The barbecue that we're, we're making barbecue and it's the great American barbecue show and it's very clearly trying to be you know the great British baking show only it's American so we're gonna barbecue something damn it um, there was something like that there was one that I can't remember the name of but it was such a blatant ripoff of the great British baking show and just like oh we're gonna have a nice time and everyone's gonna bake. But the thing is, once you Americanize anything, American reality television and American, like, game show television is cultivated on 
Conflict. Conflict and, and high tension and all these sort of things that is just completely devoid in Great British Baking Show. Yeah, because, I mean, in this show, nobody ever sabotages anybody. No one is there to win at all costs. Like, that That should... When they finish early, if someone finishes early, they go around and they go, do you need help with anything? Right. Can I, like... Can, you know, can I help, like, hold something for you? And and they'll straight up ask for help from people. People will walk away from their own stations to help somebody who, like, needs someone to hold something still while they pipe. Like, yeah. this is just a thing. And you get the you get the sense. And apparently, after every episode, like, they all hang out. Like, they'll all go to the pub together. They'll, because they'll, every, every, everything is always filmed on a Saturday and a Sunday. So they'll be like, oh, yeah, uh, they'll come in on Sunday to do their signature or to, or to do their showstopper. And they'll be like, oh, I had a few too many, you know, too few too many pints at the pub last night. Like, because they're all just hanging out. You get the f- and when people leave, other people are sad that they're leaving because they've all grown to love each other right. so much. That same dude who went home on vegan week, he always showed up wearing these bright Hawaiian shirts the following week. Everybody showed up wearing bright Hawaiian shirts to honor him because they were like, it sucks that he's gone and we miss him. And it's it, it's touching and it's wonderful. And it is like, it is a, if any show is a safe space of a show, it is this one. And like, okay, the thing I always want to compare it to, and this is another show that I actually like a lot, but I... I don't watch it with the regularity that I watch Great British Bake Off, is Cutthroat Kitchen. Sure. And cut for those of you who don't know, Cutthroat Kitchen is an American show hosted by Alton Brown. And the premise of it is you have three professional chefs, so already different because they're not amateurs, but three professional chef, chefs who are competing to win, I think, like $50,000 or something. Mm-hmm. And they're given three challenges that they have to cook um and the whole point of the show is that they can spend their prize money to bid in auction for either advantages for themselves or disadvantages for other people so if you you could win by spending tons of your prize money on like auctioning and winning to have like your opponents cook on a cooking stove or like a camping stove instead of their proper like stovetop stove or forcing them to use uh, forcing them to like turn off all of their burners for 15 minutes in a like hour-long challenge right and the idea is you uh, or you can or to be the one who like i remember one where you get a set of tasting spoons and you are the only person who is allowed to taste your food no one else is allowed to taste their stuff as they're doing it like and you can spend all your money to try and win all of these auctions and get these advantages but then you end up with less money than you would otherwise and alton brown is a dick to everybody and it's a lot of fun and it's I like that show because it's the chefs are always terrible people. Right. Like they're always very competitive assholes and I like watching them fail. I never like watching people fail on Great British Bake Off. I have seen cakes collapse or things burn or get judged poorly. And I have sat there and been like, oh no, 
Oh no, I love them. Oh no, not Nan. Not Raul. Oh, Rahul. You love Rahul. I, listeners, maybe the emotional climax of the entire show, at least one of them, is there's this contestant named Rahul who is an incredibly shy, anxious, quiet, like, little guy of a dude. They literally, in his backstory, say that Part of why he started baking is so that he could bring baked goods into work to make friends. Right. And he's here and he's just constantly nervous and he's constantly like second guessing and, and criticizing himself. And he does wonderfully. He he does so well in the show. And you're just your heart sings every time that the judges are nice to Rahul. And it's just and, and you get that kind of investment in these people. Right. It just I, I the show isn't high stakes in the way in the cheap ways that shows like Cutthroat Kitchen are or other competition based shows. But there is always that tension that somebody you like is gonna do poorly. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's never it's almost never for like their own shit, like they're amateurs by definition. They have to be amateurs to enter, and maybe they'll make a mistake. Like, like one of one of my favorite moments is um, during a lot of the challenges. The judges will come around to the stations and be like, "What are you making?" And they'll explain it and stuff. And a lot of times, you'll get like Paul Hollywood being like, "How long are you going to prove that for?" Or, or he's just, he'll he'll ask some question about the baking process for it, and they'll give an answer, and he'll just stare at them like. I don't know if that's the right answer. Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure that's the way you want to do it? <laughs> I, and sometimes it is the right thing, and he's just psyching them out. Yeah, and it's and that's just fucking great. It's so wonderful. And and I've even had there's even occasions where he'll be like, I know the answer, but I'm not going to tell you. Right. Yeah. And you just you love those moments. You live for those fucking moments. This show has a vibe that makes it so special and so unique. And I. I never get bored watching it. There was a point with Cutthroat Kitchen where I got kind of bored and was like, yeah, it's fine. It's, yeah, I don't need to keep watching this. Even when they have contestants I don't overly care about, I'm interested to see what they put together. I don't know what goes into making a baked Alaska or a sculpture of a lion made out of bread, which is a thing that someone legitimately... Like you can Google bread lion, bake, Great British Bake Off. You will see the most fucking awesome bread lion statue. Yeah. Like a, like a lion made out of breadsticks. It's fucking cool. <laughs> I don't know how to do any of this stuff. I don't know how it works. Again, I watch it with Stephanie, who does bake, and every time we watch it, she's like, I should make cookies. Like, yeah. I should make cupcakes right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm interested to see what they put together, how their creativity or their lack of creativity manifests and how it's met. Like, And you'll get people who, you know, you kind of like, you're interested in, and they just don't work out for one reason or another. Maybe their style's wrong. You'll get people who are really good at making beautiful bakes, but they taste like shit. You'll get people, and I'm pretty sure this is, because this is the kind of cook I am, so I assume it's the kind of baker I am, people who make delicious things that look like garbage because they have no sense of presentation. Right. And you see them trying to get better over time, and you're invested in that journey. The judging is always pretty fair and pretty entertaining. I'm not even going to lie. 
The hosts are fun. The whole thing is just a joy to watch. And I like that. It's a good show, clearly made for a tiny budget, with a simple format, and just good people. And especially with American TV. You just don't get that much of that. Right. Or you don't get it. You don't get enough of that. So I love Great British Bake Off. Me, my angry, pessimistic, frequently just like enraged at everything ass, loves this show because it's funny. Yeah. I know Paul's going to come in hard. I mean, bread's his thing. He's part bread. Have you seen his chest? No. His torso. It's like a forget. <laughs> I often just breach in and pull a tuft out and then... Because it's got a peaceful vibe to it, but also it has stakes. They're not high stakes, but it has stakes. It has people I... Whatever their screening process is, it can't be just based on bakes because there's never assholes. The closest right. thing to an asshole is one dude who I remember got all the way to the finals. And the, the worst thing he ever said is, I'll be really happy for them if they win. But of course, I would really like to win. That's like the worst thing this dude ever said. And of course, we're like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> but right. like, it's, it's, it's such a wonderful show. And honestly, you could do worse than to just put this... I, I, I'm serious. If you're normally consuming media that pisses you off, if you're normally consuming media that stresses you out, like, I don't think I'm going to watch the last season of Stranger Things. <laughs> We're going to talk about that in a second. I know. I don't think I'm going to watch it. Because by all accounts of what I've heard, it's long as fuck. It's a lot of, like, really hard emotional hit stuff i mean i like kate bush but like other th and, and, and i and after the last season i think i care about the characters less yeah i feel less invested in a lot of the characters and i think i'm just kind of over it i don't think i'm gonna finish the last season of stranger things i will watch every season of great british bake-off that comes out i was worried when the hosts changed but the new hosts we're still fucking great. And I got used to everyone really fast. It's just a good show. It is. And I and I can't recommend it highly enough for any of you. Matic and I, four thumbs way up. <sighs> Man, you mentioned shows. Netflix, <laughs> which is the hosting network of the Great British Baking Show, at least in America. I was halfway through these notes before I realized that. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, for my hate this week, I would like to talk about Netflix, or at the very least, what Netflix has become. Okay. Um, so there are several things I could ask that feel pretty superfluous. Instead, I want to ask you, Alex, do you remember the final time you entered a Blockbuster? Because each of us has the final time we entered a Blockbuster. It's like the final time your parents put you down as a kid. Here's the funny thing. Um... We didn't actually go to Blockbuster that often. Okay. Like, we we tended to rent movies from this little, like, it, I don't even think it was a chain. It was called, like, All-Star Video. Sure. It was in the same plaza as, like, you know the Winn-Dixie down the street from where you and I used to live yeah. in Waterford? Yeah. In the same plaza right there. Okay. It was in there. It was called, like, All-Star Video. And honestly, 
we rented from there because it was nearby. We also used to rent movies from the Albertsons back when that was in Albertsons. Um, I'm going to get really Orlando-specific geography here. You know the corner of Alafaya and 50 <laughs> where now it's like a fresh market produce place? Uh-huh. Uh, that used to be an Albertsons, and that Albertsons, you used to be able to rent N64 games and VHSs. Hell yeah. We used to rent videos from there, too. And I will share this. When Netflix used to do DVDs, when that was their primary business model, we had a Netflix subscription as a family. Yeah. But we rarely went to Blockbuster. I don't think... I don't know that I ever actually, like, straight up went to Blockbuster on a regular basis. I went to other video stores. Fascinating. Okay. I personally have, like, deep nostalgia for trolling the aisles of a Blockbuster and seeing all the shitty horror movies that weren't available anywhere else. But That's, I, how, that's how I was at All-Star Video. I, I get it. I, I only ask this as a stage setter for my topic, which is, like I said, Netflix. Yeah. Which at this at this point in in the year of our deity twenty twenty two, you know I'm, I'm you know I'm not upset at you for believing in God, right? Yeah, I know. Okay. In the year of our deity twenty twenty two, Netflix feels as well known as Facebook or Amazon these days, and it, it feels like an exercise in tedium to go through the process of reminding listeners of the origins of the company. Yeah. However, in case we have listeners who are too young to remember, which is basically anybody under the age of like 19, 20, because um, spoilers, Netflix has been streaming for 15 fucking years. Jesus Christ. Um, Netflix originated as a DVD rental company that would send you discs in the mail, removing the need to drive down to the local all-star video or Albertsons or Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this plus being, I'm pretty sure the originator or at least the popular originator of streaming television got Netflix the nickname of the Blockbuster Killer. Mm. Um, So, the company was founded in 1997 and has been streaming since 2007. And in that time, Netflix has only gotten uh, bigger and bigger in terms of cultural cachet and influence. But what has grown with it is emotional and ethical black mold, if you'll forgive the metaphor. I'm here for it. I feel like Netflix... You mentioned, so 2007, they started streaming. I feel like I remember, like, the episode of South Park where Randy buys a Blockbuster, and it's a Halloween, and he's, like, and and there's, and he's forcing the family to, like, be in the Blockbuster on Halloween. Right. Because he's, like, it's peak time to rent spooky movies. And Sharon is on the phone with a friend and is just, like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, you're watching scary movies on Netflix or Hulu? Like, right. and that had to be like 2008, 2009, something like that. So, goddamn, like 2007. Well, and yeah, I remember, I don't quite like have a moment in my mind where I remember streaming being a thing. I remember original content becoming a big thing. I So, the thing that I recall, and I think I've talked about this on the show, is I remember the time... What do you remember the time? Anytime I can slip in a Michael Jackson reference. Um, I remember the time when it was, you'd watch Netflix for just like whatever streaming shit was available. 
I watched Amazon Prime video because I had an Amazon Prime subscription anyway. And I remember watching like, oh my God, they have all of Batman the Animated Series on here. I'm, I'm gonna totally watch that. And then you'd watch Hulu and Hulu would be free with ads and you could watch the most recent five episodes of like basically any show that was out there. Cable, not cable. You could watch the most recent, and, and, and it would be available like anywhere between a day and a week after the episode debuted live. Right. I fucking loved that because yeah. like the shows I actually cared to watch, I would watch on Hulu like when they came out. And then I didn't have a Netflix subscription and I didn't worry too much about it. As far as I knew, most people I knew were just kind of watching The Office. And I think a few people were watching, um, God, what was it called? It wasn't Killing Eve. One of the first original Netflix shows. I don't even remember which one. Probably Orange is the New Black. Probably House of Cards. It was before those. And I feel like it had something about like killing something or... I, I don't remember, but I, I wasn't that terribly interested in it. Um, you know, I still don't pay for a Netflix subscription. I, I trade my HBO subscription with friends. <laughs> um, I feel like HBO had an on-demand thing online for a minute. They might have. HBO is probably, like, the other one who was really... Um early in the game although it was not hbo max no the old hbo model was they had a cache of movies they had their hbo original shows which they had been putting on actual hbo like they had the sopranos for for instance or the hbo comedy specials and then they'd have a rotating series of movies because movies would come and go on hbo right um, I don't know if Netflix was the first streaming, but I feel like they were definitely the first one that I ever heard about. Absolutely. So it, it, it is a it is a thing. It is a cultural touchstone these days. Netflixing something is like using a Kleenex. It's not right. called a Kleenex, but you call it a Kleenex regard. If one were so inclined to try and, like, chart this, one could say that Netflix reached its peak around 2019. Okay. It had the lion's share of original content, viewers in every country on earth, and several of the streaming services that would become Netflix's chief rivals today mm-hmm. are either just getting started or are still niche enough where it's like Netflix is easily 50% majority of the streaming market. Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix would ride that wave for the next few years, and one could then assert that the downfall of Netflix, the crashing of this wave, maybe started on October 5th, 2021. Okay. It was on this day that Netflix released a comedy special of one Dave Chappelle. Not their first with him. Not their first with him, but the one where he officially has lived long enough to see himself become the villain. Uh in which the comedy special included several transphobic remarks. I won't call them jokes. This created a controversy, both externally in the form of fan protests and outrage, and internally for Netflix itself, as several mid-ranking transgender employees stated opposition to the special. 
and were met with hostility and ostracization from their higher-ups, from their bosses. I didn't include it in my notes, but I was reading accounts of like, there was a, a marketing programming executive who was like sitting in on this corporate executive meeting of people talking about the Dave Chappelle fallout. And like Netflix higher up execs were like, what are you doing here? You, you're you not supposed to be here. You're not allowed to watch this. You don't want to hear what transphobic shit we're saying. And this employee had to like pull up the email that was specifically inviting them by name to this meeting. Shit like that. Uh, eventually leading to at least one person to quit over their mistreatment. Netflix has since doubled down by not only defending the Chappelle special and refusing to give any sort of warning for the transphobia that happens in the content, um, but they have also given another special to Ricky Gervais, a uh, noted uh, shock comic set to come out, uh, actually, I think like a month ago, mm. um, which reportedly opens with purposefully offensive uh, transphobic jokes. Mm -hmm. So they defend Dave Chappelle and they go, oh, this got us a lot of market share. Let's have another comedian do it. And that was the like first big, oh, this is like a problem. This is like a real issue Netflix kind of thing. But for a few months, it really started to seem like everything would blow over. Netflix launched a sister site called Tadum, as in Dum. the. Oh my god, that's stupid! As f I never heard about this. Oh yeah, um, which is basically like an entertainment journalism site exclusively for Netflix content. Okay. It's it's BuzzFeed, but all they do is talk about or no, it's um it's IGN, but all they do is talk about the next Stranger Things season or the Sandman or whatever. Sounds insufferable. Um, and announced the long-awaited Stranger Things season four, tying that back in, the mm -hmm. season you're saying you you have no interest in watching. Um, however, this might have served as the company's last gasp before it begins a slow death that we are potentially in the process of witnessing before our very eyes. A few months back, Netflix announced that Stranger Things had a budget of $30 million per episode. Seemingly to draw up hype and kind of humble brag and like be like, oh my god, this is going to be so amazing, we threw so much money at this. But viewers instantly began questioning this, as it is an astronomical amount of money to spend on a television episode... Um, and especially from a company which is famous for never actually having made a profit. Yeah. Which is a thing people have called Netflix out for before is like, this is an unsustainable thing and like this never actually makes any money. So they've also always been super like non-transparent about their finances. Right. Or even about how their content does. Like they push shit and they, what's the, what's it, is it Red Notice? What is the Red, movie? Yeah, Red Notice is the Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds spy thriller. That, if you believe Netflix, is like the single most streamed movie or streamed piece of content right. in the world. And when people have been like, yo, do you have receipts for this? They've been like, 
We don't share our receipts with anyone. Bye. The other hilarious example is they made an assertion that the live-action Cowboy Bebop series was their most streamed opening season of all time and then very quietly canceled the show. Because everyone shat on it. Indeed. Um, So, people have instantly started calling this out and around the same time that they announced... Oh my god, you guys, Stranger Things Season 4, $30 million uh, episode budget. It's insane. Around the same time they said that, they also announced that they would begin cracking down on account sharing in an effort to maximize budget by making everyone who actually watches Netflix actually pay for Netflix instead of trading their Hulu or Disney Plus or HBO Max or Paramount Plus or Discovery Go accounts to get their friends' Netflix. What's up? Listeners, uh, if you want to go back a few years and find our hate on the proliferation, that's not how you say that. Proliferation. The proliferation of streaming content. That episode's still out there. (laughs) I still have that HBO Max subscription, and I trade it for so much shit. At its face... Asking people who enjoy their content to actually pay for it isn't unreasonable. Until you remember what I just said about how Netflix is blowing their load on outrageous amounts of money for their television content. And what Netflix has also been doing in a cost-cutting measure. And this is the latest thing. This is the real big fucking PR blow up. This is the thing that made me want to talk about Netflix as a hate. Okay. On May 4th of this year, Netflix began company layoffs. On Star Wars Day? On Star Wars Day. Offensive. They figured everybody would be watching Disney Plus. (laughs) And they were right. Um, They began company layoffs focusing particularly on the Tadum staff. And amongst them, primarily focusing on women, people of color, and LGBTQIA plus individuals. Six months after creating this this thing, this, this website for people to hype up Netflix, six months after taking jobs and in many cases uprooting their lives, 150 employees have been kicked to the curb. And in response, these employees have been calling out Netflix on Twitter for passively demanding they censor themselves while they were employed with the company and really revealing just what an incredible two-faced, performatively woke, duplicitous, bullshit organization Netflix really is. So for those of us keeping track, they actively don't care about their transgendered fans or employees and i would go so far as to include anybody in the uh you know queer spectrum in that category and when it came time to start firing people the first people out the door was anybody who was not a straight white man netflix fired almost all of its minority journalists and content creation focus teams while spending millions of dollars giving Stranger Things, perhaps the whitest, straightest of all Netflix original shows, so much so that the last four episodes can each be at least two hours long. 
They heard mass outcry over Dave Chappelle transphobia and have responded by giving more transphobic comedians a platform. They demand money for their futile, increasingly stale product, while rival companies like Hulu and HBO Max have championed actual queer and uh, POC representation. We have Netflix to thank for the modern streaming landscape. And like I said earlier with Dave Chappelle, I think they have lived long enough to see themselves become the villain. It was really interesting. You know what? If I, I can go back to our episode where we talked about too many streaming services. And in that conversation, we were talking about how annoying it would be to basically recreate the satellite TV model where you're paying for packages so that you get this many channels and this many channels, except we're doing it with streaming services. And I feel like there was a time when it was, it would have been unheard of to not have Netflix. Yeah. For some of us, for a lot of people, I think Netflix was their only streaming service for a very long time. I knew people who would be like, oh, yeah, I don't really, I have Netflix because I really like a lot of the original content. Plus, they have this, this, and this. Um, those three things might be, you know, The Office, Great British Bake Off, and I don't know, insert another Netflix exclusive fucking thing. Um, friends. Um, so I don't really think I, I I'm not going to get Hulu because I think Netflix has me down. I remember making fun of Paramount Plus Yeah, when that was announced. Because I was sitting here going like, what the fuck does Paramount have that I'm going to give a fuck about? Hey, Arnold. I remember thinking like, oh, Disney Plus is going to be, you know, us. Uh, Disney Plus is going to steal so much market share because a lot of people on Netflix are, you know, using it for the children's programming. And Disney Plus is absolutely going to corner that entire fucking market. Right. And that's exactly how that shit went down. Yeah. At this point, like, I hear people talk about canceling their Netflix. And again, I don't pay for my own Netflix. But I feel like you could lose Netflix. And unless you're the biggest, unless you're someone who legitimately does care about streaming Stranger Things over and over again. Or, you, you know, there's content on Netflix that I like very much. I've talked about my love of the To All the Boys I've Loved Before series on here. That is Netflix original movie trilogy. Yeah. Your favorite Christmas movie is Klaus. My favorite Christmas movie is Klaus. Oh, and I didn't even mention this because I like forgot about it, but before they fired all their minority people, they cut their entire animation team. Yeah. So we're not getting another Klaus from Netflix. No, we aren't. Now, theoretically, you could just buy the DVD of Klaus... I, what, what I see here is Netflix hoisted themselves upon their own petard, as it were. It, it, it was the invention of original streaming content, I think, that really showed every other media network, oh, shit, we can just make our own show paywall that take our shit back from netflix or you know whatever company there used to be a time where all of hbo's catalog was on amazon there used to be a time where all of cbs's content was on netflix mm -hmm. um 
everybody went, oh, shit, we can just make our own show and then start doing that. And other entities are doing it better at this point. Yeah. Netflix still has Stranger Things, Bridgerton, The Sandman, which... I don't pay for my Netflix either, and so I, th- I think I can watch Sandman in ethical good conscience. Um, but Hulu, which is owned by fucking Disney, to tie this back together. Which Disney did buy them. They didn't start out there, but yes, continue. Hulu, which is owned by Disney, is really championing, championing like the, the gay rom-com subculture, both in TV and movies. Our Flags Mean Death is an HBO Max exclusive and is being lauded as maybe the best queer representation show of the 21st century. I think there's... Okay, this is a little bit bringing it back to our old streaming proliferation conversation. But here's the thing. I... I don't know if I would agree that Netflix hoisted itself on its own petard because some of this comes back to endless growth capitalism. Hmm. When you are a subscription-based model, there is a ceiling to how much you can get new people to subscribe because there is a point where everybody who might subscribe to you has subscribed to you. When you are available in every country, there is a point. That's why they're cracking down on, on the on the sharing. Yeah. Because they're like, okay, we make our money from new we make our money from subscribers. So we can only make more money by either raising prices or getting more subscribers. For a good long while, they didn't raise their prices much. I think yeah. at, I think at one point they put in a $2 increase. When the, like originally, I think it was like nine ninety nine, and then it became twelve ninety nine, and then it became fourteen ninety nine. Sure. And that was all over across this fifteen year period. I'm not mad about that, but this idea that you're just going to get more and more subscribers, you can't. There's a point where you can't anymore. There just aren't more people who can subscribe to you. So then, what? How do you increase your profits? Notice I said increase. It is cut. It is take away the sharing so that people are theoretically forced to to sign up for you when they weren't before, which is still stupid. It is cutting your costs, not investing in new things. And that is not going to work under this... That could have worked under this model back when they were the only game in town. Right. But they're not anymore. They just aren't because everyone else has seen what Netflix has done and gone, okay, this is what you do as a content licensor. We have catalogs. We are Disney and we have a catalog. We are Warner Brothers. We have a catalog. We are Paramount. We have a catalog. We are fucking CBS. And we have a catalog. So rather than license it out, why wouldn't we just create our own streaming service? Now, granted, there are doubts about that. CBS All Access, I still think probably isn't doing that hot, is it? 
CBS All Access turned into Paramount Plus, for what it's worth. What the fucking shit? <laughs> You're telling me that I can watch Star Trek and Hey Arnold on the same streaming service? Yes, I gave you my password. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, the, and then, okay. Then I think about, like, HBO. HBO, I don't think, is trying to corner the market. HBO is not trying to be the biggest thing. They're trying to grow kind of gradually. Um, and I don't and I think HBO is owned by Warner Brothers, I'm pretty sure. Uh, which is part of it when you're when you're under a large the umbrella of a larger corporation, if you're marginally successful, you, you'll do fine. Right. And HBO does not I know people who don't have HBO subscriptions. I know because it's how I get most of my subscription is is trading my HBO subscription that I do pay for. That's the one fucking one that I do pay for. How much content does HBO did HBO have before it was HBO Max and brought under the Warner Brothers stuff? I mean, just the classic HBO series, is, yeah. which isn't nothing. But... It's not nothing, but by numbers, by the sheer volume, they didn't have as much stuff. Right. I could I could scroll I one a couple times I have scrolled through the entire back when it was HBO Go or HBO Now, I yeah. scrolled through the entire list of movies that they had. It was a fair amount, but it wasn't as much as Netflix had. Sure. The number of original series they had, like it wasn't nearly as much, but they were better quality. They were a higher tier, and it worked, and it still works for them. And even now, they're you know I can watch fucking Cartoon Network shows on there. Don't you watch fucking Gumball? I do. I sure do. On HBO, like that—that's—that's that's, that's a Cartoon Network show, and all the Warner Brothers stuff. It's all under that umbrella now. The problem is Netflix is not the only game in town. They're not even the most important game in town now. At this point, I feel like Disney Plus, HBO Max, and maybe Hulu and Paramount tie. Yeah. Maybe Amazon is in there as well. Um, you know, I feel like Amazon doesn't have as many must-watch shows, but they have a handful of must-watch shows. Uh, we've talked about two of them in The Expanse and Marvelous Miss Maisel. Exactly. Like, they they have some... And, you know, Amazon is not a good company, but, like, I loved Fleabag. I love Maisel. There's, there's shit on Amazon that I would absolutely watch, so... Mm-hmm. So I'm going to close it with this and we get to our question. You've pointed out Netflix is not the only game in town. It's probably not even the most important. Yeah. It's certainly the company that has shown its ass hardest and most recently. And yeah. I, I believe in holding accountability. So certainly steal Netflix if you can. If not, really ask yourself if you want to keep paying for it. Because... They don't care about you. They don't care about anything other than your money. Fuck them. And if you want to do the, if you want to do a solid, like if you do really care about Netflix to the point where you will pay for it, okay, do that. But share your password with everybody. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everybody, tell people to cancel their subscriptions, and you will give them your password. There you go. Well, with that, shall we go to our question? Yep. Uh, okay. You listed the format, so it is my turn to read the question. Hell yeah. 
And this is coming to us from our friends at Am I the Asshole, which I just always love when we ask ourselves, who is the asshole? My girlfriend, this is a 23-year-old man and a 20-year-old woman, uh, let me use her old computer while mine is broken. And I found an old archive written by her when she was 16. It is a long story about a maid in the antebellum South that has a romantic affair with the man of the house. It is not as overtly sexual as you might be thinking. It has sex, mostly towards the ending, but it is minute, but in a mostly romantic way and very emotional. The maid is clearly meant to be a version of my girlfriend. Everything was fine for me until the part when they arrived at a train station. The maid wanted to leave because she couldn't bear for their romance to be hidden anymore. The man was following her to try and convince her to stay. The issue is that I found the general representation of the train station, and later in the story the trains themselves, to be full of anachronisms. I am a train enthusiast and know a lot about the history of rail transportation in the United States. Jesus Christ. So I talked to my girlfriend about it, and she got upset because she says, I shouldn't have read that because it was a personal thing from when she was a teenager. She's also mad that my reaction was something as superficial as the level of train accuracy. Am I the asshole? So we need a name. Is Thomas two on the nose? Thomas the tank engine? Yes. I wouldn't. But <laughs> Fair enough. Like, okay, so real talk, and, and, and I'll be honest, I feel like there absolutely is an autism reading in this. Um, my first thought is fucking Sheldon and Amy from Big Bang Theory, but do you have anything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, I, that actually perfectly fits in my opinion. Yeah, because this, this seems like the kind of thing where Sheldon would be like, Oh, I'm gonna use Amy's computer for a thing. Oh, there are so many inaccuracies in your in your fan fiction about fucking maids and train stations and bullshit like that. So, all right, the Big Bang Theory, and we have uh, so our asker is Sheldon Cooper talking to his girlfriend Amy Farrah Fowler. Indeed. The image we gave it was 45% white noise and it still managed to reconstruct it. I've never seen results like this before. No, we need to stop for magnets on the way home. This is going right on the fridge. <laughs> the image we gave it was 45% white noise and it still managed to reconstruct it. I've never seen results like this before. No, we need to stop for magnets on the way home. This is going right on the fridge. <laughs> I, I read, would you like to comment first? So, Whenever we get an I am the asshole question, I like to answer the question directly. And I am going to say, Sheldon, you are an asshole. <laughs> like, and the thing is, again, I am re and maybe I am unkind in reading this very, um, spectrum-related conceit into you, but you seem to be very unaware of why your girlfriend would be upset, why Amy would be upset about you going through her personal computer, reading something just because you found it, something, prob something that probably within the first 
sentence or two was very clearly something personal. Mm -hmm. And then bringing it up and your focus is on the train anachronisms. Like, that part is kind of funny. I'm not going to front. But the act that she is, the, the initial act that she is upset about, which is you going through her personal stuff, feels like the main core invasion here. Yeah. And then the train anachronism shit is you giving unasked for commentary on her personal writing that she has not chosen to share with you. And you are focusing on that without even realizing how shitty what you've done is, which just adds to this giant ball of shittiness. It's remarkably obtuse to read something and go, hey... I know this is a deeply personal thing from when you were essentially a kid that I essentially read without your permission. And also it's wrong. Like, I have been asked to critique people's writing before. And I have pointed out anachronisms in things that I recognize. This happens a lot uh, when I found people, like, I I will be reviewing someone's fiction. and Okay, I'm in a writer's group. And I remember one of the earliest um, rounds that we had, someone was um, submitting a short story that took place um, in the early 1960s. And in that story, they referenced that Chubby Checker's The Twist was, uh, was playing on the radio. And I had to be like, listen... Um, Slight anachronism. Uh, the twist was not out at this point. I think. I think. I think the story took place in like 1959 or 58, and I'm like, yeah, that's that song came out in 1960. So you may want to pick a different song. But that's me and my music nerddom. Sure. And that was an anachronism that was that I pointed out while editing a manuscript that was given to me in the context where people were asking me for my comments i did not go into my friend's computer go oh i haven't read this draft oh hey that draft that you had in a folder on your computer you um you had an anachronism in it like and i understand sheldon that this might not make sense on its own because to you it's justified because you are a train enthusiast what i am telling you from one neurodivergent to another is the notion that someone would be upset because you pried into their personal space, while you may not understand it, the thing of it is their feelings are still valid. Amy's hurt and upset that you dug through her stuff is validly something to be upset about. And then that the commentary was to... point out inaccuracies in something so personal is just icing on a shit cake. Sure. You are an asshole, Sheldon, and Amy deserves an apology. And I, I by and large agree. There's a, a few little aspects I want, I want to dig in more here. I think part of the compounding of the issue is not only was this something private that was 
that Sheldon looked into without any questioning from Amy. It's some shit from high school. Yeah. It's some shit from four years ago when Amy was ostensibly a different person that is like potentially non-reflective, potentially like even if they were okay in a vacuum, this idea of like, oh no, I was a garbage writer. Um, I feel I like I don't want anyone reading my shit from high school. I do not want anybody reading my fan fiction from high school, which is what this basically boils down to. Sure. Um, I do feel a need to point out a big deal is made about it being in the antebellum South, but at no point is it stated if anybody, if Amy or Sheldon are a person of color. This could be potentially problematic in other ways if Amy is a white woman who wrote self-insert fan fiction in which the self-insert fan fiction involves her being of a different race, particularly an African-American in the antebellum South. I want to give Emmy the benefit of the doubt, but I, that was the first thing I picked out of this, and I just feel the need to bring it up. Wow, Andy, why you got to make everything about race? Because <laughs> clearly it's my tangent this episode. Jesus fucking Christ. Um, regardless, uh, let's just assume the benefit of the doubt here. Um, I agree that Sheldon is the asshole. The, uh, it is shitty in a couple of different ways. It is an invasion of privacy. And even in it being an invasion of privacy, like, you'd still be the asshole if you had told Amy, oh, I, I read the story you wrote, and I, I think it's actually really good. I think if you took another draft at it, like, you'd really have, like, a short story you could publish. You'd still be an asshole if you gave this a resounding thumbs up and were totally supportive of Amy's writing. The fact that you zoned in on such a non-contextually um, vital aspect of the writing in and of itself. It, it, yeah, like Alex said, it's the icing on the shit cake. Something I do for fun, because this is who I am as a person, you go on the IMDb page of any war movie specifically, and there will inevitably be like a dad who knows everything about naval combat, who points out, like, well, the rigging on this ship is totally wrong, and they wouldn't have flown this flag. And, like, I've seen train dads on the IMDb comment section being like, well, that locomotive literally wouldn't have existed yet, which is where Sheldon needs to be. In the comment section of IMDb, like, calling out these anachronisms. That is the appropriate place to do that. The inappropriate place to do that is in a private story you read from your girlfriend who is graciously lending you her computer. Sheldon, you are the asshole. If you worry that you're the asshole, <laughs> if you have a relationship question of any kind, if you're having an issue with your boyfriend reading your fan fiction from high school or something related to work or something related to a pet issue or yeah i'm going to open it up if you if you want to run a situation by us and ask if you're the asshole 
We will give you the God honest truth, whether you like it or not. I just realized there's one way in which I have totally been trained at, but not for trains. Because <laughs> I've always pointed out to people that the guitar that Marty McFly plays at the end of Back to the Future, sure. it goes back to 1955. But that's a Gibson ES-335, which wasn't invented until 1958. I adore you. Listeners, if you adore us <laughs> and you have a question... You can send it in to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com, and we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. We're told it helps people find the show. I don't fucking know. I've never looked at it that closely. <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D where we tweet about our various topics and we will uh, very likely be following the downfall of Netflix and uh, whatever the newest season of Great British Bake Off <laughs> entails. With rapt interest, yes. Come to us for your updates. Indeed. You can find uh, my sister show, Cult Fiction, that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson everywhere that you can find love-hate relationship. Um I think we've got a Netflix movie or two in our like queue of movies, although there's a conversation for another time about how streaming has killed the concept of a cult film. Regardless, you can find cult fiction everywhere you can find LHR, and you can find me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JoVocop2113, on Instagram at Sir underscore Acha with two A's at the end, or you can follow andy's underscore minis on twitter to find what i'm painting on any given day that's right you can follow me on twitter and instagram and tiktok and lie chess and chess.com at a underscore x underscore r u i z oh to have a singular handle oh it's so nice thanks for listening y'all as ever please tell your enemies